Hello, friends. We are back with episode 111, all ones all the time of the Our Weekly Highlights podcast. My name is Eric Nance, and we are in the middle of February. Certainly, I'm sure it's that time of year where some of you are thinking about significant others in your family. So happy uh, Valentine's Day to everybody celebrating that wherever you are around the world. But we're going to show some love for the R language, of course, in our R Weekly Highlights. And of course, I can't spread that love without my awesome co-host, Mike Thomas. Mike, how are you doing today? I'm doing well. Doing well. You know, happy Valentine's Day to, to everyone as well. And uh, maybe happy happy uh, break to all of our NFL stats folks who have been crunching and simulating for the past uh, six months or however long it's been. And now the oh, Super yes. Bowl is over. So you have some, some time off to retweak those models. That's right. Yeah. Before you know, the next season is upon us. But yeah, that was quite a competitive uh, struggle there. But yes, uh, give give your keyboards a break. Take take some downtime. You deserve it. So what better way to have some downtime than listen to us banter about the great community efforts in the R language. And we're going to do that today with our latest issue that was curated by Jonathan Carroll, another one of our OGs, so to speak, of curators in the R Weekly Project. So my thanks to John, and of course, he had tremendous help from our Art Weekly team members and contributors like you around the world. Now, we've talked a lot about one of the biggest innovations in the art community is, of course, the package ecosystem. And frankly, creating your own art package can be quite an exciting adventure. Now, it could be just scratching your own itch for a project. Or maybe you're wrapping some really complicated analyses into easy-to-use functions. The community benefits immensely whenever these packages are released or all of us to use. And it's easy to get entrenched in kind of the technical bits of coding your package up. There's always so much to solve, so many new ideas to explore. But there's much more to the story, especially after your package is released to the public. And our first highlight brings that perspective to the forefront. I'm happy to say that Maelle Salmon is back once again on the highlights. She, of course, is um, a research software engineer with RopenSci and RHub. And she brings us the latest blog post from the aforementioned RopenSci on just what exactly maintaining an R package entails. And some key words that we're going to highlight here the maintenance, and how the community is involved. So we think about when you create a package and you are, in essence, the owner of that package, that it's your call, so to speak, whether you want what kind of features you want in the package. What is your scope? What's your intended vision of it? That's your call. But there's more to the story, as I said, because once it's out in the public, hopefully you will get a lot of users or maybe a small subset of users that are very happy of your package, but along the usage comes maybe bug reports or feature requests or contributions to your package that maybe you didn't envision before. I think this all can be a really, again, exciting adventure, but there have been cases where it can be quite overwhelming. How can it be overwhelming? Well, imagine your package gets really popular and you suddenly get a flood of issues from your latest release. How do you handle that? It can be, again, very easy to be overwhelmed. I even get this internally with some packages at work. Some that I didn't think would be used very much 
suddenly get a major project that uses it and I get issues left and right. My head is spinning. How do I handle this? Well, there are some ways to take advantage of the community to help you out. Maintaining a package doesn't just have to be a solo effort. Perhaps you can bring an enthusiastic user on board or another talented developer to help you with things like issue triaging or solving some complicated bugs. And having a co-maintainer can, again, be a great way to keep your sanity as your package complexity increases. And also being able to tap into the wealth of resources to say Sai or other organizations expose with best practices of maintaining packages, maybe getting some time with a developer that is particularly proficient in a skill that maybe you want to emulate. Take advantage of these opportunities. Um, Al mentions the Sai Slack channel is a way to get in touch with those on the R Open Side project. And there are many, many other avenues as well. But don't be afraid to ask. You know, there's no such thing as a silly question when it comes to package creation and package maintenance. The other thing to keep in mind is that does every issue have to be a high priority issue? It's really your call in terms of setting the priority, but it's not obligated that you address everything by dropping what you had going on and addressing it all at once, you maybe want to create maybe a cadence or a regular schedule for you to have protected time to do it, but don't let it, don't let it overwhelm you. And Mal also mentions a great um, snippet from my uh, friend Will Landau's targets package about being clear on the GitHub repo when he is not available to resolve an issue. So that it's pretty transparent that it's not somebody abandoning it, they just have another competing priority. That's okay. That's not a bad thing. And also, the other thing to keep in mind is when issues do come up, it can be easy to see those notifications get lost. So if you have a particular system to help you keep notified, definitely take advantage of those so that maybe an important issue doesn't fall through the cracks, or maybe you find a way to minimize the, the burden of everything getting hit all at once. But the other thing that Mal mentions is that it's not just working on the exciting stuff. Sometimes there is some routine maintenance and needs to occur. Maybe you got that dreaded message from the R Foundation or CRAN that your package might be archived if it doesn't meet this check on Solaris or some other esoteric operating system. I don't judge. It happens. Um, so maybe it's a case where, again, the community can help getting help on, say, the R OpenSci forum or other um, package development resources can help you navigate those waters and make you feel like you're not alone. It happens to the best of them. One can look no further than what happened last year with the threat of the ISOBAN package about to be archived, which triggered the potential archival of ggplot2, which caused quite a stir in the community when that happened. But um, Claus Wilk, the maintainer of ISOBAN, was able to get in touch with uh, posits engineers that are helping with ggplot2, and they found a path forward very quickly so that everybody was happy in the end. But he didn't have to do it alone, folks. That's the key. If there's nothing else you take away from my little summary of this, is that the community is there to help you. Whether it's a community of worldwide package authors that are going through similar experiences, 
or the user base of your very own package. Take advantage of those enthusiastic and motivated users so that you can spread the wealth a little bit of not just the benefits of your package, but to keep it sustainable and going without you encountering what could be the worst case scenario, and that's burnout. It's happened time and time again, but there are easy ways to, I think, get yourself in a better position to keep your package maintainable for the long term and still keep it fun along the way. Easier said than done sometimes, but I think Mael does a great job of giving you some key points to consider once you put that package into the wild, so to speak. So again, excellent blog post, easy read, and lots of practical advice I think anybody can take from that. So Mike, what did you think about Mael's summary here? I thought it was fantastic. Uh, I have also been bitten by the Solaris check before, so that was a, a hurtful reminder when you brought that up. That brought me back to a little bit of a dark place, but I think I think I can get over it now uh, with this blog post. And I have two really cheesy quotes that have come to mind after reading this blog post, so I'm just going to forewarn everyone. Uh, with great power comes great responsibility. I think that was maybe Peter Parker's grandfather in, in Spider-Man, maybe a couple other folks as well. But I think right as your our package that you maintain grows maybe in popularity or usership, um, you, the responsibility around that can grow. And open source really implies community. I think that's one of the big messages that I got from this blog post. And Mel uh, references a quote from Aaron Grand, who defines maintaining a package as ownership around package community. Along the same lines, and this is quote number two, that it takes a village um, to raise an R package. I think that's the exact quote that's been around for forever, right? <laughs> there, there's not a ton of incentive for developing and maintaining an open source package, right? This is a conversation we've had a, a lot, um, at least financial incentive most of the time, you know, with the exception of a few folks who are, are paid to work on open source software and the lucky ones out there. Um, but Mel points out that there are a few things we can do to try to help reduce the stress and the time that it takes to maintain your open source R package, including trying to maintain as a team, um, build a team around your R package. If you don't have one already, you know, reach out to other package maintainers as well. There's Slack channels that Mel references in the blog right there for you to join um, where you can, if nothing else, uh, commiserate around some of the, the stress and the time consumingness that it, it takes to maintain your package. And like you said, uh, Will Landau is a, a great case, but let users know right in the documentation what they should expect for turnaround time for bug fixes. That can sort of be your, your SLA um, for enhancements, bug fixes, all those type of things. You don't have to address every issue the second that it's posted on GitHub. And th there's a few more uh, tips that Mel references, but I guess the last one I'll point out is that you may want to consider trying to find funding for your work. Um, I have an open source R package that I struggle to maintain sometimes, and I never necessarily considered uh, trying to find funding for it, which would probably change my ability to contribute more time to it. Uh, Mel talks about the R Consortium has a call for proposals that happens twice a year. And I think the output of that is some folks are able to get funded from the R Consortium for their open source software work. 
And lastly, uh, Mel concludes by saying, you know, you should step back every so often and, and see if the balance feels right. And if it doesn't, use your lifelines. And there are, are perhaps more lifelines out there than you might realize. And there are more lifelines out there that, than I realized um, un, up until reading this post. So it's a great one for anyone already developing and maintaining our packages or are those interested in maintaining and developing our packages in the future for maybe some of the expectations you should set for yourself as well. Yeah, really great summary, Mike. And the other thing I thought about is, this is, this is also mentioned in Miles' post, is that you do want to make it as easy as possible for not just your users to report issues or requests for enhancements, you want to make it easier for you as well. Now, the concept that really brings that home is the idea, especially in the case of bug reports, is easy ways to create a reprex, a reproducible example. There is nothing more discouraging, and I can speak from experience at the infamous day job, where I get a very esoteric bug report and I ask, well, can you tell me more about how, how that, what were you working on or what was your environment at the time or what data set kind of structure were you looking at? And they, it takes them a while to turn that around. Well, I can't really help anybody if I don't have the clear details. Um, what was the situation at that example? Or more importantly, a way to actually replicate it myself. Because I have debugging techniques that I like to use whenever I mess up my own stuff. I'd like to use them when I get bug reports from other users too. So there are very easy ways, especially if you're leveraging a platform like GitHub or GitLab, to have whenever a new issue is raised, a template in that markdown to quickly tell them how they might produce a reprex or maybe expectations on how they put the labeling of an issue or anything like that. So take advantage of those as well because you wanna make it as easy for you to kind of dive right in when you have the time to do it, or especially if you have a team that's gonna help you like we talked about um, in, our, in both of our summaries here, so that your teammates that are maintaining the package with you can also contribute just as easily on that fix or that um, feature request. So take advantage of it. It's all there for the taking. Practice makes perfect, maybe maybe not quite perfect, but once I got a hang of it, I was like, why didn't I take advantage of this stuff sooner? Just makes your life a lot easier. All right, moving right along. And in today's age of readily available data, we have many opportunities to explore our intuitions in our favorite languages. Of course, we talk about R here quite a lot on R weekly highlights and using a healthy mix of statistical approaches. You can look no further than the popularity of the Tidy Tuesday initiative, where a new public data set is released to the community for them to practice those analysis and visualization skills. It's been widely popular and it's a great service to have a fun way to hone in your craft, so to speak. Well, Julia Silge, software engineer at Posit, once again puts her skills to the test for all of us to see in the open with an engaging exploratory data analysis on art history textbooks while illustrating the power of a very fundamental technique to deal with uncertainty. Now, like her previous Tidy Tuesday adventures, we have both a great video screencast and an accompanying blog post for us to enjoy and learn along with her. And this particular data set originated 
from Holland Stam's thesis on the display of artwork across multiple art history textbooks. And one of the particular issues that Julia explores in this data, which by the way, has its own art package, so it can't be any easier to load this into your setup, is exploring the representation of women and their artwork being featured in these editions of art history textbooks over time. And so what Julia starts with is like what many people do in an EDA, let's put some visualization around some of the hypotheses that we're about to explore. First, some simple frequencies to show that at least in the, the textbook that she selected for this analysis, there are predominantly more artwork produced by men than women that are featured here. Now, that may or may not be surprising, depending on your perspective. But then what about the effect over time? Certainly over time, we started to see women get an increased representation of their artwork. This is still looking at one specific instance of data. What can we do to account for maybe this, quote unquote, being uh, uh, too specific of a fit, so to speak? She fit one linear model to it. That does clearly show a gender effect and a time effect. But just what's the magnitude of that? What could we expect if we had a perfect scenario and we were able to collect multiple versions of these data? What would that relationship still look like between those two factors? So that's where resampling comes in. Resampling is a very fundamental technique in inference when maybe we're not quite sure about the assumptions we're making on how the variables in our data are distributed as. Julia used a typical parametric model fit, linear model fit in the EDA of this data set, but maybe that doesn't always hold true. Well, what's an easy way to interrogate and kind of minimize the effect of those assumptions and get some variability that we can assess? And that's where she performed bootstrap resampling when you imagine you have all your data points in a big basket, you take them out one by one. You may even take multiple records of the same type in your resample. And she ends up doing this 1,000 times using the tidy models ecosystem in R to accomplish all this. And imagine for each of those 1,000 bootstrap samples, she fits the same linear model as she did in that earlier EDA. And with those model fits, we get the overall model fit metrics. We get the coefficients associated with each model term, their significance, their variability, and everything like that. Well, what's nice about the Tidy Models ecosystem is you can aggregate all of that together and visualize very quickly what that relationship might look like um, in terms of uncertainty. And that's where at the end of the post, on top of the great visualization she had in her EDA, she does basically a smooth fit of each regression model fit between female and male um, representation of these dimensions. And you can clearly see that there is certainly still a lot of uncertainty in terms of predicting this more fully with women's representation in this, largely because there just still isn't a lot of data in terms of equal representation yet. So it's interesting to see that, yeah, as, you, as the additions get later in their time span, that variation does minimize a little bit. 
but there's still more uncertainty in that relationship as compared to the other side of it with the male counterparts. But the key takeaways for me is that you don't always have to be constrained by that one assumption of your data distribution on that one actual data set. A lot of times resampling can help us calibrate what these relationships are really entailing. And this is a technique that we use fundamentally in some of the work I do at the day job. But also when you look at the machine learning principles and algorithms, bootstrapping and resampling is a huge component of that piece as well. So this is a great accessible way for you to see how you could explore an intuition that you have on a data set when you're not quite firm on what assumptions you should make in that relationship among the variables and hence the model fits that you're performing. There's a lot farther you can go with this and what we'll have a link to in the uh, supplements of this episode is a great article from the Tidy Models site on how you can use bootstrap resampling and regression models to look at these relationships more closely. So again, Julia, Julia does an excellent job. Like I said, whether you like the video version or the blog post version, you've got a lot to digest here, but in an easy way. So credit to her for, as usual, putting out her learning and her teaching out in the open for all of us to learn from. So Mike, what did you think about Julia's explorations here? You know, one thing I love about Julia's tutorials in the Tidy Models ecosystem is that she shows how you can do so much with so little code. It's really striking when I read these tutorials. You know, for example, in her post, she shows how you can fit a thousand linear regression models, you know, across a thousand bootstrapped resamples, and then plot them all using Tidy Models, Dplyr, Per, and ggplot2. And not only is this a great showcase on how to build bootstrap samples and fit a model using tidy models, but even before all of that, it's also a phenomenal showcase on how to do exploratory data analysis or, or EDA that will inform your model development process. You know, when I'm doing EDA, I'm always trying to find clever ways to look at multiple dimensions simultaneously as well as you know, trying not to boil down my data to summary statistics where, where at all possible. So an example of how Julia does this in the post is instead of a line plot of a variable over time you know, that might have to be boiled down to taking an average for each point in the plot, Julia develops a plot uh, that is a series of box plots over time, which really shows the distribution of the data over time um, and we don't lose a lot of information that we would have otherwise lost if we just boiled that down to summary statistics over time. So I don't know, a lot of really, really cool takeaways for me reading this blog post. I think there's a little bit of something for everyone in here, um, whether you be a model developer or a data viz person. But at the bottom of the blog post, uh, she references another post she wrote called to downsample imbalanced data or not. Um, which is a topic that I know myself and a lot of folks struggle with handling imbalanced data when fitting a machine learning model. So that might be another rabbit hole uh, that you may be interested in going down if, like me, this is a topic uh, that hits home with you. Yeah, and there, yeah, like you said, you can go down quite a few tracks here. But what's nice, is, again, to emphasize from my standpoint is that you may see things like resampling or permutation scrambling mentioned in ML workflows all the time. 
but they're not confined to just that. Like I said, we've used these techniques really in powerful ways internally. In fact, a package that my company open sourced a few years ago, looking at subgroups of patients of enhanced clinical response to um, based on demographic or other lab factors, an algorithm that has some roots in machine learning, but has its own take on it without the ideas of resampling and permutation based resampling, we would never be able to really assess the strength of the subgroups we find. And that can be a huge deal when you think you found that next diagnostic hypothesis. Well, are you sure it wasn't by chance, folks? No, we got to get some variation around that because it could lead to a very costly mistake if you're wrong on that. So being able to implement these methodologies is hugely important, especially as you think about uncertainty with the data we have. Absolutely. That is a great point and a good reminder that fitting a model is all about trying to generalize the data gathering process. And it's not just trying to fit lines to the data that we do have. Yep. And as that's as, my soapbox. And, and speaking of soapbox and cheesy quotes, and we all know that all models are wrong. Correct. There are just a few that are useful. Thank you, George. And moving along to our last highlight of today, back to the visualization front in an innovative way that also can enhance accessibility as well. Well, we're all familiar with when you create an awesome plot in R or whatever your visualization tool of choice is, you may see it on the screen, but then when you want to represent that elsewhere to export it out, sure, you could export it as a PNG or a bitmap or things like that and throw it into a another document or slide, but please don't do that manually. Do it reproducibility, but you know, that's another topic for another day. There, there is another format that's more akin to the way the web language works, and that's called SVG. And SVG, under the hood, is really an XML-based specification of that visual. Many of the vector graphics you see online that look really fancy have an SVG component under the hood. Well, our favorite um, engine, if you will, for reproducibility in R the Knitter package has actually supported um, producing formats such as SVG as well as the typical PNG, but the way it was supporting it wasn't quite akin to enhancing accessibility. And that's where Ihui Sia, the author of Knitter, makes another return to the R Weekly Highlights. In fact, he's got a lot of posts featured in this issue, which we'll touch on later. Um, with how he has enabled the capability in Knitter for you to manipulate SVG plots with a little combination of R Markdown and JavaScript. This feature request actually came from Joe Young CEO, where they were interested in getting the XML version of the SVG output to help with accessibility so that a screen reader could actually help someone who is say visually impaired to understand what that plot looks like in their in their screen reader by hovering over points and having that being narrated in the audio well you can't do that if the svg is still a static image 
Well, luckily, anyway, when he's motivated, he's able to turn things around quite quickly afterwards. And now there is an option in Knitter called Knitter SVG Object. If you set that to true, then when you see that plot in your compiled R Markdown document, you can now get the XML of that instead of just the image that was taken of that SVG representation. That opens the door to more possibilities, folks. It's not just getting that for accessibility. You could, in theory, use a little JavaScript magic, manipulate it yourself without even the need of Shiny to do this. Absolutely. So um, again, this interesting sort of use case came from, from Ju Young Seo, who's a brilliant R developer, who I believe was the first blind person in the world to become a posit certified shiny instructor. I knew I had recognized his name when I read it in anyway's post. And Ju Young also gave a great talk about our accessibility at R Studio Global 2021. So I would recommend checking that out too if this is something that you're interested in or, or even not. I think it's something great, uh, great to learn about. So as of Knitter 1.40, which was released in August 2022, um, it's now possible to knit with that raw SVG within the file uh, using options knitter.svg.object equals true. And like you said, Eric, SVG is essentially XML, which is interesting, That something that I did not yet know. Um, and if you do know anything about XML, you know that it's, it's raw code text, which you could theoretically manipulate, which would in turn alter the image when you manipulated it. And even better, would be Git friendly, I believe, right? Exactly. So you're not just going to see uh, commits that, that the binary changed. You might actually have commits in your repo uh, where the SVG um, raw text behind it or raw code behind it um, would have changed, which I think is is really, really cool. Um, so Eway has a nice little example um, as well about how to knit this type of document and write a little JavaScript that plays an audio sound each time your mouse hovers over a bar on a chart in the knitted document. So he has a link to that in the blog post as well as the R markdown and the JavaScript code that he used to create that. So we'll, we'll throw some links in there uh, referencing this blog post and, and Ju Young's talk and, and feature requests and things like that. But it's a, it's a fantastic, really quick um, read that I think showcases a, a great use case of creating an enhancement to your package to increase and improve accessibility. Yep, and um, I've had some adventures of SVG in the past as well with trying to interact with it, you might say, dynamically. So it's not really one-to-one -one related to this post, but it did give me flashbacks to an innocent question I had asked way back in, let me look it up, 2019, yeah, way back machine, where I was working on a Shiny app that did this SVG of a human body map but I was using modules to encapsulate some of the custom processing and I needed to interject a module namespace into the JavaScript snippet that tapped into SVG or XML language. And I was admittedly running into issues of it, but like we talked about about community in our first highlight, I thought, I wonder if someone else has cracked this nugget. So I put the question out on our studio community, now Posit community. And lo and behold, I got some answers. And what really blew me away 
is that this also caught the eye of Garrick Aiden Bowie, who at the time of this recording has now officially joined the shiny team at Posit. So congratulations to Garrick. But he had used this as well as another uh, community member, Maya Gans, um, explorations of SVG and his JavaScript for Shiny uses workshops. So you never know where these questions can lead, but SVG can be quite powerful to manipulate both from the our markdown way that Eway mentions here, as well as Shiny itself and everything in between. But again, it was a great flashback to what seemed like a very niche question turned out to be a great learning opportunity for me as well. It was great to see you, A, back in the blog. Yep, and and as I mentioned, he's actually featured quite a few posts in here. And Mike, I believe that's one of your additional finds you want to call out here. So take us through what else he saw here. I guess I am a little biased, uh, but when I saw this one, this one pop up, I could not could not get away from it. So Eway is essentially able to recreate the old faithful old faithful geyser uh, shiny app within an R markdown document that has two R chunks, a JavaScript chunk and a CSS chunk. I didn't even to be honest with you know that the last two chunk types were possible. I think I maybe had known but I had I had forgotten. Um, so that was a great reminder as well. And there's a little drop down at the uh, top of the document, the knitted document that allows you to select the number of bins uh, that you want to display in the histogram. And when you change that selection, uh, the, the plot underneath it changes, which is really incredible. There's no need for a backend server or really R at all. Um, it's all done in JavaScript and pretty concise amount of JavaScript, I may add. So really, really, really cool use case. I think we're, again, just starting to see some uh, different projects that are shiny related, web application related, and you know maybe quote unquote serverless or, or you know, WebAssembly, those type of things, which I think can potentially be really game-changing here. You know, right now, I think it's still for, for pretty small projects. Um, but I think eventually it's going to be interesting to see how that continues to develop. So th that's, the, that's the one that I decided to pick out. Eric, how about you? Yeah, I will say this is an emerging trend that, you know, we, we like to tell it like it is on this very podcast. I'm going to tell you all right now, you need to watch this space, folks. This is like the next revolution and how web applications are being served up and interacted with on a user basis. I'm going to shift gears a little bit and thinking about some of the the interactions I have on statistics, especially with my colleagues at the day job who are very much uh, experts in Bayesian analyses, which I'm still very much a novice of. Well, there's a great blog post from Jumping Rivers once again on whether you should take the investment to learn the STAN framework for Bayesian analysis in addition to what you may know already or if you're starting from scratch. So this post does a great job of comparing and contrasting two popular ways in the statistical community to fit Bayesian models. One is using what's called the JAGS specification, and the other is STAN. There are quite a bit of differences in it, but this is a great way for you to kind of compare and contrast the two and see if STAN is right for you. Again, everybody's got their own preferences, but as a Bayesian novice, this is a post that I wish I had seen earlier in my journey to learn Bayesian methodologies because they, it's hard for somebody new to this paradigm to really understand the nuances 
of these different frameworks. And I think this post does a terrific job of that. So if you're find yourself early in your Bayesian analysis journey, this is definitely one to watch for as well. My hand is my hand is up and I'm excited to read it. Yes, yes. I have some colleagues that are very devoted JAGS users that um, may may have a difference in opinion. I don't know, but I'm going to put this in front of them and see what they think. So if nothing else, it may generate some good conversation nonetheless. And speaking of hearing back and conversations, we always love hearing from all of you. Um, it's very easy to get in touch with us. The links in this episode's show notes has a direct link to our contact page if you want to send it to us that way. And if you got yourself one of those awesome state-of-the-art new podcast apps that you could get at newpodcastapps.com, such as Fountain or Podverse, you can send us a little boostergram to share your love for the show in a fun way without leaving your app itself. It's going to be any easier no middle party in between. You just get directly in touch with us and we'll be sharing your feedback directly on the show if you do. And also, if you want to support Our Weekly itself, you just head to rweekly.org where you can see this issue and all previous issues and a handy link to our GitHub repo where you can send a pull request to any new blog post, new package, new tutorial that catches your eye and you want the rest of the R community to learn about it. We welcome all contributions. It's all marked down all the time. So it's very easy to get set up and running. You can even do it directly in GitHub itself. Really easy to get set up there. And we love hearing from you personally as well. I am still sporadically on Twitter with at the RCast, but more, more regularly, you can find me on Mastodon with at our podcast at podcastindex.social. And Mike, where can the listeners find you? Yes, I'm trying to be on Mastodon more often as well. I think I'm doing a better job lately. Uh, thanks for all the folks out there who have connected with me there. And uh, if you haven't yet, I'd love to connect with you and, and hear your thoughts uh, on how we're doing on our weekly and what you might like to, to see. And you can find me at Mike underscore Thomas at Fostodon.org. Awesome stuff, Mike. And I'm happy to say I've made continued progress in my little calendar project for our curators to make curation even easier. And the immediate beneficiary of that next week just happens to be the voice you're listening to right now. So I will have it front and center that next week's my issues. <laughs> be, on, be on top of that with our little calendar set up. But in any event, lots of rabbit holes to dig into in my R exploits. So we're going to close up shop here. But we will be back with episode 112 of our weekly highlights next week.